Good. Well, welcome to this episode of Infosec Real. We are delighted today to be joined by Greg Vandergast. Greg, you're someone who is a huge personality in the industry. You've got a lot of experience in security as well. We're excited to kind of peel back a few layers here, pick you apart, find out what makes you tick within the industry. Also, we've got lots to cover um, in respect of current affairs and all kind of good stuff. But before we do, Greg, let me just throw it over to you. Tell us who you are and what you're all about. Uh, I'm Greg Vandergast. I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm glad you're delighted now. I don't know how it's going to be by the end of this, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm Greg Vandergast. I'm uh, currently kind of a freelance consultant. Uh, my last job was the head of information security for the University of Salford. Uh, started out teenage hacker, self-taught about 23 years ago. And I think my, my position in the industry right now is, um, if anything that differentiates me, it's looking more at kind of um, just humanizing the stuff, focusing more on relationships, on curiosity, on, on human potential, and instead of uh, you know, move away from the box ticking and, and approach the whole thing as a more kind of a flexible, organic thing, I guess, which makes me mm. a bit of oddball in this industry. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Where did it start then, the hacking when you were growing up then? What did that kind of look like? What, what kind of stuff were you teaching yourself? Um, well, it started when uh, my slightly older sister, she's three years older than me, uh, came home from Blockbuster with the movie Hackers. <laughs> uh, I was 15 years old and Angelina Jolie was in it. Need I say more? So uh, yeah, next thing I knew, I'm uh, yahooing uh, this hacking stuff. Uh, and that's what I, because Google didn't exist yet. I'm older than I look, but not, not older than I look. Um, and yeah, I just remember kind of, you know, Googling this stuff. I didn't actually have a computer at the time. I had to go to my father's and he had a computer and, and I started using that. And that's when I kind of discovered, you know, the internet a bit, how it worked. Usenet was still big back then, which most people won't even know what that is now. Uh, you know, things like Linux and all these other operating systems that I'd never heard of. And it started by, you know, just downloading some distros, playing around, you know, reading, you know, uh, Linux Unleashed and then, you know, the, the Microsoft books and then joining, getting on the internet relay chat and finding some hacking channels and just kind of mingling in there. And uh, yeah, just, just being curious and wanting to know how everything worked, you know, so you start, you start your learning Unix, but then you've got all these services. Well, how, how does Apache work? How does a web server work? How, do, how does DNS work? How does bind work? How does, how does SendMail work? How does, you know, all these protocols are dead now, but at the time, and it was like, you know, how does Perl work? How does the command line work? How does, and you just start figuring out how all these things work. Uh, just kind of just natural curiosity and how, how these things fit together. And then I got kind of quite into networking because I remember at the time, no one in security really focused on networks. Everyone focused on systems. And I was like, well, these things all tied together somehow. Like, I, I want to know how routing works. I know I want to know how, you know, uh, ports and, and traffic analysis and all these stuff and, and just, couple of old computers on a desk, a wooden board with four legs running, you know, snort and, and all the random tools and, uh, and just causing havoc on the internet, basically. And then uh, one day I broke into some computer on the internet, didn't quite know what it was. And it turned out to be a nuclear weapons lab. And, <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> and I didn't and then... actually, it's, it's funny because it made, I mean, it made the news. It was in Wired Magazine. It was on CNN. There's a video of me, like a reporter on CNN on IRC talking to me. And it, it made the United Nations Security Council, the U.S. Uh, National Security Advisor, who was talking about like the threat of teenage hackers to national security, all this stuff. 
I'm just some 16 year old kid in my in my bedroom. What, what you know, what's what's going on? And um, I, it was such a big deal, but I didn't I didn't actually know what I had broken into. It was just a shell account where you know, I, was just, I was just trying to score a shell account. And I found the server that had an old version of SendMail, and I managed to trick it into like basically email a password or a, a kind of a user password pair into its own password file. And then I, I created an account for myself. It wasn't later that I, I punched in the actual IP address into Netscape and the picture loaded. And uh, there you go, Atomic Research Center, uh, enriching plutonium wow. and, and doing nuclear bombs. And this, this was literally a few weeks after that exact same center had set off five live bombs underground. So it was really hot in the media. Um, so yeah, so some, uh, some gentlemen came to my house uh, not, uh, not too long after that and uh, made me a job offer I couldn't refuse. They were really adamant about the couldn't refuse part. And, uh, so you weren't in trouble for it, is that right? Or you were I, like, I the, with the authorities? So I was actually in the Netherlands I briefly, I was born in the Netherlands. I grew up in Canada, but for a couple of years, I went back to live with my father there. And it was in that period. And what I broke into wasn't in the Netherlands and it wasn't in the US. And I later went to the US and that's when the, the gentlemen in suits came. So I hadn't technically broken any of their laws, but they felt I may have had some, uh, some skills that uh, they could leverage. And then I spent uh, three years doing stuff yes. with a, a letter in my back pocket authorizing extra legal activities. And that was it. <laughs> That's not, imagine showing that to a police officer. <laughs> Attorney General says I can. So yeah, and um, did that for a few years. Um, after 9-11, things were getting a little bit hairy in terms of the demands. And then I kind of went more into like went to work for a consultancy and then contracting, consulting on my own, and then kind of got some uh, kind of low-level infosec manager roles, and just kind of grew from there. That's really interesting. We've had a few people on that have very similar. One, the movie Hackers seems to be the catalyst for everyone going to information security. I've so never I, seen I, it. I've never seen it. Have you as, never as seen it? As ridiculous as it is, it's actually one of the more accurate hacking movies out there, especially for the time. If you, if you read Bruce Sterling's Hacker Crackdown, which is a free download, uh, it's the story of really the hacking scene in the early 90s. And a lot of the characters from the movie Hackers are actually real names from real people that were around the scene around that time. So it's quite, it's quite cool to actually see, you know, you're growing up, you're 15, 16 years old, you're reading about this, this story about these hackers that came like five, six, seven years before you. And then you go mm -hmm. watch a movie and you see all the names and the characters, obviously in really exaggerated ways, but it was still, still quite cool and accurate. I think, yes. it's, I think it's crazy how one cult classic sparks off what you could almost say is the industry. Yeah. It, 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 it kind of sparks that, you know, it sparks people to go into the industry and create the industry. Um, I think it's hilarious that, um, that that bit of information that you just shared isn't very well, it is publicized, but not very well, well publicized. Like you don't exploit that, like you could do. You could call yourself the, you know, the teenage hacker X, Y, and Z, or that's not something you seem to highlight as a, as a virtue. Do, are you almost like, like what, what that time you were alive, what do you, how do you feel about it? I'm, it's, it's funny. Cause I remember actually like some of the agents 
at the time being like, you're going to write a book about this when you're done. Uh, but it, it just it just feels like very anticlimactic. And I cannot imagine someone actually being interested in that stuff I don't, outside of our industry anyway. Um, and the other thing is, you know, it was it was a very long time ago as well. So I don't know, it just it just feels I mean, certainly the first few years, it was kind of like, well, I, I don't really want to be saying this because it's still quite fresh and there may be ongoing investigations and who knows. And then it was like, I don't know, you, you, life just kind of moved on. You started doing other stuff, maybe in a more professional function. I, I started using it again, maybe about a couple of years ago, I started putting it in a, in a profile, but it was, it was kind of around the same period that I was growing more into kind of leadership positions. And I'm really dealing with, with C-level individuals and people have this habit of saying, of, of thinking you, you fit in one narrow silo. And if you go technical, if you go, oh, former hacker, then they're going to think, oh, he's you know technical geeky guy, not very sociable, this and that. And, and that's kind of the opposite. Like it, it's, it's cool to get people interested and come to your talk or whatever, but it's not what I want to represent business-wise because it's not really what I'm, what I'm about anymore. What's funny though is that, well, not funny, it's not funny whatsoever really, but you know, the, the situation you described there, like a piece of skater equipment being connected to the open internet and you've managed to like get a shell on it. And we see like this week in the news that uh, thing in America, the, the water treatment plant or whatever has been compromised somehow through was it team viewer or something i can't remember what, what it said in the article now but um but yeah basically connected to the internet and someone's messing with the salt content yeah. of water just just don't do that yeah <laughs> this is this is this is most information security it's like don't do that just just don't do that and it's it's interesting how i advocate a lot about you know security has become such a this high tech and Gosh, you, know, you see these rooms of like, everyone's really proud of their socks, these enormous rooms full of like 8K monitors, 8K curved monitors, you know, that all the latest tech and so cool. And it's got, it's backlit like your TV back there and everything is purple and dark and everything. And we, we're hiring all these people and they're making tons of money and all this tech and, and tooling to detect these things. And it's like, well, if the normal salt level is one part per million, and sometimes you boost it to two parts per million when there's you know a lot. It's not salt, but it's a salt. It was a chem, you know, a sterilizing mm -hmm. chemical. And sometimes if the water is very difficult or very very dirty, you have to boost it to two parts per million. Why does the system allow you to ramp it up to a hundred parts per million, which is toxic? The system just when you design it, it shouldn't be capable of that. So it doesn't even matter if it's compromised or not. It's not you know limit you know check the input, limit the the scope of what it can do. And it's mm -hmm. that that lack of thinking in the really early on the phases that that keeps biting us in the ass because we just do everything wide open we never really go back and think hey could we restrict things or build things more intelligently or in a more integrated manner and then we we focus all the time on detection and response and it, it costs a fortune and it's it's just exponentially inefficient and and that's kind of my gripe with the, the security industry so yeah i think the interesting thing from that article is um was the, the the plant the plant uh, operator observed in this this is in the article observed how the attacker took control of the mouse and I'm just thinking what is happening there like, so he sat there watching him do attack the system uh, like I don't I don't get what's going on in this story this story is so crazy it just you know, there's not enough information there's not enough detail um, 
I mean, I, I know it's supposed to be a serious discussion about yeah. security and hazards and, and, you know, people getting into infrastructure systems, but uh, I'm, I'm just imagining this battle to the death over the mouse, you know, between <laughs> two of them and, and laughing because really that's, that's about as seriously as I can take it. Well, yeah. And, and you got to think, you know, information security, we all focus on like the, the, the big, you know, advanced attacks, zero days, RCE, super technical attacks. And this was, this was team viewer. Yeah. Like, we're back to team viewer again you know if it's these some of these some of these attacks and yeah there is very large very sophisticated you know solar winds type of instance but you know something so so simple as a as as rdp or team viewer has caught can cause death and chaos um even even the really sophisticated attacks I wouldn't say sophisticated. I don't think sophisticated is the right word. They're they're more complex in scale. Okay, yeah. Because I remember someone posting about a year and a half ago that the repository for SolarWinds updates, mm. the password was SolarWinds123. Mm. Yeah, so, why, not, why not Sparrow? I think it was the dude who, uh, who posted that, who found it. He's a good bug bounty hunter. Yeah. Not exactly highly sophisticated, but then they got the code and they added the code. That that's the thing. But the actual like the breach, and this is the thing. Like you're right, actually. Like the whole industry is focusing on on ninety nine percent of the the effort and the work and the research is going into areas that are account for like zero point one percent of the breaches, and then the stuff that causes ninety nine percent of them is like. Well, that's not cool. That's not cutting edge. That's not interesting. Let's let's ignore that. It's like so we keep getting breached all the time. You know, Marriott, Equifax. They're all really basic stuff, and every time it's like highly sophisticated foreign nation attack. It's like thirteen-year-old in Bulgaria used SQL injection. I mean, it's not. Mm. It's it's not, is it? And I got an email from my gym <clears throat> this week saying that they've been subject to a highly sophisticated attack. <laughs> that's it's it's a fucking gym it, it, you know what i mean it's it, you know they're not going to have like nation state defense capabilities here do you know what i mean it's not highly it's probably a bit of ransomware or something yes. so maria really wants to know your heart <laughs> <laughs> exactly they want to know when i clocked in and out of the swimming pool yeah exactly yeah. but it, it is crazy and it it's funny i i I, uh, I follow quite a few red teamers on Twitter and there was a big uh, thread going about that team viewer situation with this uh, water plant saying like it's a red teamer, like cardinal sin would be to move someone's mouse because automatically <laughs> that's how you know a user's going to report you. If they see their mouse move, they're straight on the phone to service desk, aren't they? Yeah, it's, it's crazy. basic, but we're, we're still, we're still there. Like, I think, I, I don't know what the security industry is is doing to be honest i mean it's it's basically like it's a thing upon itself it's kind of self-propagating because we're not really resolving any issues we're not you know if you, you look at the amount of um when i used to do public speaking when there was such a thing um i'd always show this slide that it was and there were like there were government figures they were from the u.s um department of justice homeland security and they were showing like the number um security like security spending over the years and it's going up and up and up and up and it's going up in in absolute terms but it's also going up in in terms of percentage of budgets so your it budget you know 20 years ago you spent 0.5 percent on security now we're spending about 12 percent. so that, that's gone up about 25 fold 
so you're, you're expecting, you know, a commensurate reduction in the amount of incidents and breaches, but no, that's, that's accelerating even faster. So we're spending more and more money. We're spending more and more of our money. We're not even slowing this down. Like, and, and the answer is like, well, ramp it up some more. It's like, that, that's just not sustainable. And if you look at what's causing these things, and, that, and that's when I kind of started scratching my head because I can remember, what, 12-ish years ago? More than that, because I'm old. Um, doing, you know, like in my mid to late 20s, doing contract work and, you know, setting up intrusion detection systems and firewalls and, you know, they're paying like $1,000 a day back then. And it, it was cool because, you know, you were making lots of money. You were working with lots of tech. I, I remember like the network guys like choosing network equipment based on the color of the LEDs. Because one oh, of them yeah, yeah. sexy <laughs> tech. Yeah, I you love know. it. I love it. That's why people buy Meraki because it's, it looks sexy. It's got the, the <laughs> Apple. It's the Apple of the networking world. There you go. You know, it was, it was like the Wall Street of the 80s. Um, and, you know, we were setting up all, you know, we got to work with Sourcefire and all this really cool up and coming security stuff. But, and I made absolute fortune in those years. And in hindsight, like that, that was actually completely useless. We, we didn't actually know what the network was really structured like in terms of business activities. We didn't know what data was stored where and how it would flow. We didn't have the mature processes to actually maintain any of this stuff or keep up with change. Uh, none of this stuff was normalized properly. We spent millions on, on security equipment and they spent millions on paying us to put it in. And in hindsight, I'm like, not, you know, there's about 20 other things that you could have done for one fifth or one tenth of the cost before that, that would have been way more effective than all the work we did. But you, you never did those fundamentals. And, and now I'm kind of like, I, I don't want to do that stuff anymore. It's, like, it's staggering to me the, every time I walk into a business, whether it's a new job or a consulting gig, spend the first week just trying to understand the business, asking around, you know, okay, you know, go talk to developers, go talk to project managers, go talk to HR, go talk to finance. And anyone outside of IT is always surprised that someone in security wants to talk to them. It's like, well, you, you're in finance, you manage all the financial data, you're in HR, you mentioned all, all the PII and all this stuff. Like, oh, no, no, one, no one's ever asked us about this before. And then you, you start, you know, asking developers, like, how do you actually work? Oh, well, we use this platform, that platform's like, you're sorry i just noticed you're using the free version of that platform that has no authentication <laughs> yeah and, you know, and, and you, you go back and you report the stuff and pe pe no one realized like no one mm. ever looked at this stuff and it's it's staggering how you walk into organizations and like the heads of information security that have been there for like five plus years they they can't name you what hr system you use well, aren't you curious like what, what are you trying to protect like, well, we, we've got IIM and we've got RBAC and we've got IDS and we've got this. It's like, yeah, but you, you don't even understand the business that you're supposed to protect and you're already buying solutions. Like, well, what's the point? And if, if you actually find out more about the business, you find, you know, there's so many, you know, build the systems properly, build, build them together, build, build so things reinforce each other. Uh, be aware of what the actual areas of risk are and, how systems work together so that your policies and processes actually reflect that instead of just ticking a box for, for the ISO is audit. And it's, it's staggering how many organizations come in with a new CISO, a new head of information security is like, Oh, we're going to go ISO. And they put in ISO and I've, you know, I've worked in places where I'm like, 
we're, we're not going for ISO because it's ridiculous. Our, our maturity is, is zero and we've got serious infrastructure and technical debt and cultural issues. Uh, cultural issues that were, we wouldn't even be able to, to run the environment at a decent level to protect it. So we're not going to get an ISO certification. It's, it's pointless. And then my successor will come in and he'll put ISO in, in, in a year's time. Right? Yeah, but he didn't actually fix any of the underlying issues. So you've got a certification now, but you haven't secured anything. So what, what's the point of certification? And no, you know, no one gets breached and say, yeah, but we had ISO. <laughs> you never hear that, do you? Do you think, do you think the, problem, the problem with businesses is business leaders understand, and they're not, not understand, but they're aware of these big, all-compassing compliance and governance structures? So if you say ISO 2701 to anyone really in a C-suite, they, they, they've heard of that before. They know what that is. Yeah. Um, but if you said, you know, any, anything else, any more, any more specific, um, um, good one, for example, I was talking to a customer the other day and, and we, I, I was talking about how, um, I use CIS benchmarks and they'd never heard of CIS before, right. never heard of CIS benchmarks because it's not, it's not in or cool. I don't know. I didn't, I don't know why they'd never heard of it before, but do you think that's the, is that almost a problem that if you're. A security leader and you go to the board and say well i want to implement a cultural shift change or i want to look at our cyber maturity plan or i want to look at NIST maturity they've almost got no idea what you're talking about so do you think one is it the job of the cybersecurity professional to um properly communicate what you know what you want to do and why the business needs to do that or do you think that the business is just businesses are so hooked up on the big sexy compliance well, I think, you know, you, you look at the, the kind of security industry, all the big vendors, and you look at like the big four, and they are marketing machines. And they, and they are marketing, you know, GDPR and ISO and, and, and all these compliance things because it sells their services and it sells their products. They, they know that, um, you know, making them more secure, that's not necessarily going to sell something. But if you, if you go to a board that says like you are legally required to have this compliance and this magic box will fix it for you, then, then they'll buy from you. Um, and as security practitioners, part of our job is to, to fight that. Uh, that's a $200 billion a pound industry now. And you know, we, I've heard this said before, like most, most uh, security companies are, are marketing companies with tech departments. Like they'll, they'll spend 10 times more on marketing than they actually do on, on development. A lot of these really cool looking solutions, there's actually not a whole lot to them. Like God, they spend on marketing and sales. So it's it's very important to counteract that if you want to actually make things secure, which means you have to be a really good communicator and you have to be really good at becoming trusted. So, well, the, the term I use, you have to become someone worth listening to. Um, and most security professionals, the reputation is not that of the best communicators. So we've, we've got this enormous challenge that requires tremendous communication skills to really overcome a lot of the, the incorrect messaging. Uh, but generally we're actually really, really, really bad communicators. Uh, I've been doing this like 23 years and it's only the last few years that I'm really realizing like, I, I need to fix this because I, if I need to invest the time to, to communicate and build the relationships because otherwise it's, it's just impossible for me to do my job. And, and you hear a lot of CISOs complain, oh, they don't listen to me. I don't have this. I don't have the support. I don't report to the board. It's like, 
great. You've just identified everything you need to do. Stop moaning about it and go do it. Um, but we, don't, we don't consider it part of our job, but it, it absolutely is our job. And it's, which leads me to a whole different topic of what, what is our job? I mean, security is a very immature sector. Uh, we've got some kind of like very well-defined job roles uh, for you know, an analyst or an engineer or an architect, but especially in, in terms of the, the leadership and the management roles, no one has a clue. You, you look at like, I'm on a, several kind of CISO groups and you know, the, the running joke is like, yeah, I'm, I'm just hoping to last like another year before I get found out because I have no idea. Oh my, you know, <laughs> there's no standard on, on, you know, what the reporting structure should be like or what metrics you should use or what KPIs you should have. And the, the general rule is, look, if you're doing, it doesn't matter what you're doing, what your approach is, how you're getting there, how aligned or misaligned it is to anyone's standard or best practice. If you are driving any kind of actual improvement to your organization's security, you're doing a better job than 80% of the CISOs out there. And just wing it because literally no one's written the book and, and standardizing this stuff is, is one of the most dangerous things I think out there. And there's a big trend towards standardization to mature uh, the industry. It's like, we don't know what we're doing. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be standardizing this yet. Like we, we need to figure this out, this stuff out. And you see a lot of things like practices that are, are quite common in other industries where we flat out reject them without considering them. And then we, we want to mature our approach, uh, but we, we ignore that of, of more mature industries. And I, I think that's one of the things I'm, I'm fighting with because you know, back to your, your previous comment, like the, the standardization is really hurting us. It's, it's taking away our flexibility. It's taken away our, our ability to think. And I, I think with security, especially, it's really important that everything fits the business. I mean, we're, we are there to protect the business, to enable the business. Um, and, and one of the best examples I can give of that is, you know, if I've got a risk that I've somehow calculated, which by the way is impossible, to be, you know, half a million pounds, and I, I can get rid of that risk for 50,000 pounds. Well, that's a good investment because I'm going to eliminate half a million of risk with 50,000 pounds. However, the marketing department can turn that 50K into 2 million, give it to the marketing department. You have to really look at what's right for the business as a whole. And once you start doing that, executives start listening to you because you stop being a drain on the business and someone's just trying to grab resource. They see, oh, this person actually considers the entirety of the business, gives up resource to help the rest of the business. So when this person is asking for something, there's probably a reason for it. And I think that's, that's how we, we should be approaching it. And you, to do that, you really have to get very, very intimate with every aspect of your business. You know, the marketing team, the HR, the, the culture, the people, everything. And we don't do that. We just have like a standard approach for everything. You know, build a SOC, do this, do this, do this. And it, it doesn't work. You'll never learn enough about, about the organization to actually secure it. And you'll never get any traction in, in that organization's management. More, more and more. Um, times you record these um, communication skills seems to be the biggest um, asset for any information security specialist it doesn't matter where in your career you sit you're early on seasoned peppered whatever you want to call it um, if you can't communicate you're not gonna you, you won't really progress maybe is the right is the right thing to say you can you survive you know you might stay 
stay in the, the role you're in. Um, one of the, one of the topics in, in your book is talking about building brand and influence. Um, I, I would say you definitely have a defined brand. Oh, you know, people people know who you are. Um, how did you go out to build that, or was that naturally? Did that just happen? Um, I I think it's I think it just kind of happened. To be honest, um, first of all, I'm very glad to hear that that you're seeing that trend. That communication is you know the soft skills are picking up. People are starting to realize that it's early days. And and you're absolutely right. Like I've I, I had one kid meant. Uh, 18 he was he wanted to be mentored and uh, he's like what what should i be doing and you know he's thinking like what certification do i get what do i do this this that I'm like go on linkedin and start building your brand start you know start start getting seen start contributing start becoming someone people trust um because i don't know if we want to get into it here or not but the infosec hiring is disastrous i think quite yeah frankly. let's go most, into it most let's leaders, get into it most most hiring managers don't have a fucking clue what they're looking for. Everyone wants a unicorn, but th this is the the irony I think is they want you know we want the unicorn that has worked with every single one of our twenty seven different platforms. It's like that's not the unicorn. The unicorn is the one who is motivated and has the ability to adapt to anything, so they can, they can pick up your twenty seven platforms and the next four hundred. That's the and whatever they happen to come across while they're exploring and getting to know your organization, they pick up and understand. That's the unicorn. Like the, the actual static skills are irrelevant. You can, any platform, you can grab a book in a week, have a decent understanding of it. So that, that's totally wrong. So, and, and I think the way we structure roles is wrong in order to be effective. You know, I, I come into, I build a team and I, I don't know what, to, what positions to give them because I, I've come into an organization. It's like, well, okay, I've got 97 things I need to deal with and oh, this person looks promising. Which things do you know? Right, I'm going to put you to work on these 17 of my 97 things that I need to work with. It's like that. No one has created a name for this particular role, but you know, hey, this person happens to be good with the, these tools, and they're quite savvy, and they're good communicators. So I'm going to have them do these things, uh, and just fit. You know, that may not scale necessarily, but those people will grow and adapt when it's easier than you think to to make it scale. So that. That to me is what's important. However, that's not how it works in terms of hiring and job postings and job specs. So, I mean, yeah, what I would tell anyone is build, build a reputation. And this is not difficult. Like if, if you're genuinely inquisitive and you, you care and you want to, to, to help people and solve problems, um, just do that. Just do it in the open and people will start flocking to you. And that will get you recognized. And it's going to be... You, you may not fit in any of the boxes that any of the hiring managers and the HR and the recruiters have defined for what InfoSec roles are, but people are going to know what you're good at. And one day someone like me is going to be like, I need someone who's good at this. Ah, there's one and grab you and no HR, no recruiter. I'll, I'll beat them with a stick to run you through the process, but, but that's it. And that's, that's how you, you get hired. And I think that's a much better organic way of doing it. Um, how many times do we get contacted by recruiters? We know how hard it is to find good candidates. Uh, a LinkedIn post and about two hours of filtering my messages. It's not that hard. You know, you'll, you'll get 10 candidates easy for any kind of entry mid-level position. If you're not ridiculously picky about the criteria and just trust in people 
and your own ability to, de to develop people. That's another thing. So yeah, so I, I do think that brand building is, is really, really important. I have no idea what my actual brand is actually. Um, but I, I started out, I mean, again, I've been doing this for 23 years. I think I've had my current LinkedIn account for 15-ish years. Up until about two, two and a half years ago, I didn't really use it. Like in, in 14, 15 years, I had the average, you know, five, 600 connections, just the odd few people a year here and there that you, that you met. And I'd, I'd use it to like look up people, who they are. But I, I never really posted any content. And it wasn't until I moved to the UK that I kind of started. Um, honestly, because I was, I was struggling for work so bad. And I'd had so many disappointments. Um, I'd, I'd love to say that it was some very proactive kind of like, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. It was basically out of despair when I was like, I'm going to die in a ditch now because nobody wants me. Uh, so I may as well kind of leave behind all this stuff that I've accumulated. And, you know, you, you write an article, you write a post, three people watch it, you know, and then you do another one a couple of days later, five people. And then you do another one three days later and oh, 12 people and won't even put a like on it. And, and it just kind of, you just keep going. And before you know it, every time you post something, 10,000 people, 20, I had one post go over a half a million. Um, and it's, it's fantastic. And it just grows and it just, people start reaching out and you connect and you know, people like you reach out and we'll do this yeah. and I'll get another 10 connection. It's, it, it just snowballs. It's, it's really important to do that. Um, I've not set out to create any kind of brand in mind. Um, I've always been a, kind of a, a serial entrepreneur. You know what that means, one failed business after the other. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've always tried to make, you know, like a, a cool company name, a cool logo, uh, and then build the company brand, you know? And I, I realized I, I need to stop doing the company brand and just do my own personal brand. For, for the first time in my life, having this ridiculous, unpronounceable last name is, is useful because it's recognizable. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would, I would advise people focus on your personal brand because that, I was, I was doing some, uh, some mentoring. It was not security-wise, it was business-wise. And I was actually advising this girl, like, stop focusing on your company and focus on yourself. You, you become the authority in this area that then happens to have a company that, that caters to what you care about. That way, you know, in five years time, you can sell your company or you can start a new company and your entire following will follow you to your new company because your following is, is tied to you and not your company brand. So it's very important for, um, you know, if, if, if Jeff Bezos next month starts a new company, you're going to follow it because it's from Jeff Bezos. You know, it's, it's not because, oh, I've, I've never heard of Cuckoo's, whatever company he, he starts, but Jeff Bezos is behind it. So you follow it because you follow him personally. I think it's uh, that so, credibility, isn't it? You know, if you if you've got yeah. credibility in an industry, people buy into that that following and will and will be naturally interested in in other things that you do. Um, it's interesting on LinkedIn because, like, I'm not a personally, I'm not a massive LinkedIn player. I like Twitter because I like the playground there. But and when I go to LinkedIn and kind of look at posts, I see so much vendor shit that I get so bored with it. Um, and I, but I almost feel like, I mean, what you're saying, to be honest, Greg, I feel is golden. Um, and I, I feel like there's a massive opportunity for people 
to really accelerate their growth and development if they just play the LinkedIn game a little bit. And, you know, how, and I say this because I see there's one or two voices out there. I won't say who they are. It's unfair to them. But that I personally, in my, you know, judging them a little bit, I think to myself, who the fuck are they? Like, they, they're nobody in the industry. But because they can string a post together and, you know, they're quite maybe opinionated or what have you, or, you know, they just got a voice. People follow that and people buy into it. And, you know, they, they, these are thousands of likes on these posts, shares, comments, all the rest of it. And you think they've built this, not a brand, but they, they've got this persona that they've developed that people, they kind of trust it. It's, it's influence. It's more like influence. Cyber influencer is the new, the new hot thing. <laughs> Being a cyber influencer is the new hot as I try to, you know, as I try to be one, fa failing at the moment. Um, but yeah, you are right, Colin. There's um, there, there's a big trend of cyber influence going on. Um, I think the, the, I think one of the issues that I've seen is it's very easy to become a, 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 an influential person in cyber just by posting you know it could be absolute nonsense but if you keep posting and keep posting and it just gets it gets into the algorithm and linkedin starts you know tracking it and the you, you, the more and more likes and shares and then linkedin loves that stuff and it pushes it to the top of top of the sea and then everyone sees it um I but mean, yeah i do agree with you you want to get big on on linkedin post cat videos i mean it, it'll work <laughs> Yeah. You're right. I mean, you're you're both right. It's it's a it's a bit almost you know it's like the Kardashians on on Instagram or wherever they they live. Um, yeah, there's there is a lot of garbage out there, and it's it's and I struggle with that because like if I do do a post, I want it to be you know constructive or or interested or, or you know, at least funny or something. Mm. Um, those are not it's it's fun. the posts I do like if I do a video and I think you know what this is actually. Because I've just been mentoring someone, or someone just gave me some feedback on something. Say, actually, oh, this is really, really good. You should share this, and I'll put a lot of thought into it, guys. This is how I structured this after having thought about it for twenty years, and and oh, hey, uh, you know, something just happened. I had a problem at work, and I, I worked out like this is a way we can we can deal with this, and this is maybe something you can use. You know, genuine value. I feel like, hey, this this will really help people. Those are often the posts that have the least traction. You know, but if it's like, hey, let's moan about HR. Yes, ten thousand. You know. Um, I said this to I said this to a vendor the other day, um, uh, because of, a, a, of of something that we're, we're working on. I'm working on the side as well. Is um, the and this is going to be a bit controversial, but because of the industry I'm in. But the boring vendor marketing does not work. Yeah. It no one is interested in how advanced your AI is or. <laughs> How I'm great your dark race. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you said it. We'll have to bleep that out now. <laughs> um, no, it wasn't. But no, no one is. No one is really interested in where your CEO grew up and he, you know, the, the 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 hardships he had and how he sold multiple companies to Apple and Google and X, Y, and Z. Um, what they're interested in is the raw content. A bit of a bit of sensationalism, actually, and entertainment. Really, you know, the the entertaining posts or that is actually what works. Not the come look at our platform and have a demo. That no one's interested in that. So, and it actually did not go down very well. Their marketing team of this vendor wasn't that interest, interested in doing entertainment value or you know sensationalizing, making it interesting to listen and watch. Um, 
because unfortunately that's not that's not what shareholders want shareholders want pure marketing um boots on the ground hammering it into people's ears um, about our platform or x y and z it's interesting because I was, I was having a very very similar um discussion yesterday with a guy called james from uh, CISO alliances if i can kind of plug in there so they're they're basically starting to run events to, to use the word loosely um, but there, there's so many of these places that are, that are doing this, you know, and it's like a vendor sponsor something, this and that. And they're, they're trying to do it a little bit differently. And, and they're trying to do some events where there's sponsorship and some where there, where there aren't, you know, and, and they had a, the first call I was on with them was with, with Mike Jones, friend of mine. And it was, it was really interesting because Mike just is just one of those guys who's got a different perspective on things. And it's, it's genuinely interesting. And I was, but I was talking to this guy, James there and talking about about dark trace because i mean dark trace has been incredibly successful in marketing how shit they are <laughs> i love it they've made themselves they, they have literally invented i don't know if they realize this if you're listening dark trace pay attention they have spent millions and millions marketing themselves in such a way that everyone hates them. And it's it's staggering because I don't know a single CISO who who likes their product, but every single time there's a breach, like the, the one with the water treatment plant, in my CISO group chat, it's like, all right, any bets on how long it takes before Dark Trace says they could have prevented this with their AI or just or that. And they just they harass you constantly. And it's all, you know, it's hyped up with their tech and AI. I was like, I'm, I'm on various groups, discussion groups, with hundreds of other CISOs, and with the exception of their email checking module, no one has ever POC'd the product and decided to use it. And the few people that went into companies where they used it, took it out. But it's, the, whether it works or not is not even relevant. It's the way they market it. It's so aggressive. Mm. Now, I, I had, I think I'd been contacted by about 12 different sales reps. Every time I went to a conference or a show or whatever, it was a different sales rep. And they're all hounding me. And at some point, and I, this may not have been dark trace, but there was one vendor, actually a reseller, I think. They would call me and I'm like, I'm not interested. And then they would call one of my guys. And like I, I, In the office, I insist that everyone sit close together so we can always interact. Um, his phone rings 10 minutes later. And it's them. And he's like, I, I literally just heard you like talking to my boss 10 minutes ago. And he said, no. And, wow. and then they try with other people. And then they try with like the personal assistance of some, somebody else saying they have a meeting with me, but uh, I'm not there. Can you pass the phone? Like anything to get me on the phone. And it's, it's ridiculous. Like I got to the point where I asked them like, put me on a do not call list in your CRM, put me on a do not call list. And they still kept calling and I got quite crossed and I had them put me on it. And then a couple of months ago, I was on, well, three months ago now, I was on a, uh, a round table and I was one of the four guests. And one of the guests was this lady from Darktrace. So obviously Darktrace called every participant and even all the speakers at this round table. And my phone rings and it's Darktrace. And the guy immediately starts apologizing that he sees that my name's on this do not call list in the CRM system. And he apologizes for having that I've been harassed by them in the past, blah, blah, blah. And then he pitches me. And I'm like, this is why I'm on the new.call list. Why are you calling? 
It's hilarious. It's. I, do, do you know? I I find it at the moment. I have uh, again. I won't name them, but there's a vendor who my company does business with, but they're looking to like you know have us maximize the our usage of their product. You know, take some extra stuff from them, services and stuff like that. They're, they're not purchased for you, Ashley. So don't worry. It's nothing controversial here. <laughs> um, but and I like their product, right? But they're harassing me. And it, it's in the same method as like they email me, they want a meeting, they LinkedIn me, and then they do the same to my colleagues saying, hey, we're trying to get a meeting with Colin. Blah, blah. I'm like, automatically, I go into like, there's a pushy salesman here. I want to get rid of him. And I, but I actually want their product, but I don't want that tactic at yeah. all in my environment. It really pisses me off. And this is the problem, right? And this is the problem that I personally have. Mm. I work in the vendor VAR space. So immediately I am tagged, I am painted with that brush. And that is the issue with this industry. I struggle to, like you, for example, Greg, it was easy to have a conversation with you, X, Y, and Z. There was no, you know, you, you knew, I don't know if you knew I was coming from a sales pitch area, but you know, you didn't think, that, you, didn't, <laughs> you didn't think, I didn't LinkedIn request you, you didn't deny because you thought I'm going to, I'm trying to pitch pitch product to you x y and z for vendors sometimes like i mean I'm, I'm, sometimes i'll see a vendor but i'll, I'll mm. see them as a person and, and that's okay and I'll, they'll send me a request and i'll, I'll accept but when it's out of the blue and i see it's a vendor mm, no not tempted mm. yeah but this, but this industry has that is the problem with the cybersecurity vendor industry and for some reason we can't seem to get away with it we, we, we sorry we can't seem to remove that type of sales tactic and i don't know why i don't know if it's an american pushy sales tactic that used to work you know it's that almost a door knocking selling windows type of tactic it just seems to have migrated over into cybersecurity, and it's it's stuck and it's here and it won't go away right. and my and, and when i talk to the grads that we have here in in the company is is it doesn't matter where you work right it's all and it's back to almost back to that brand uh, that branded influence is you need to be the individual it, it build yourself as the as a respectable trustworthy individual within the vendor space and that will carry weight everywhere you go because you'll 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 have your connections you'll be able to speak to them and be, be able to highlight that great they know that you're not a pushy salesperson that you can you you have great conversations great connections and you're there to actually truly help someone rather than just sell product that's what i'm about i'm about truly helping individuals or organizations and if it means not spending any money with the company it means not spending any money with the company because you've you've gained trust with that individual yeah i, I agree fully. i mean i have one vendor that comes to mind um and just because she was great, you know, she was super responsive. I, I had you know, had her on WhatsApp, you know, I could text her at eight, you know, eight o'clock at night, eight in the morning. And, you know, we would, we would buy mostly professional services from them, but, you know, okay, we'll buy six days there, 12 days there. But if we also had random questions, because our admins, you know, didn't have the knowledge or whatever, I could just text her. She'd ask her technical questions and they'd, they'd have an answer for us. Like we, they would, they wouldn't mind, you know, okay, if it's a big engagement, obviously we have to charge the days, but you know, 10 minutes here or there all the time, banter back and forth. It was a good relationship. And I think because of that, she was actually a really, really good salesperson because I, I enjoyed working with her as a salesperson. And she once sent me like her, her sales results for like the team. And I don't remember who the other people's names are good. 
but it was like her and like five other salespeople and her sales were like double everybody else combined. Uh, and that actually created a lot of animosity in the company because she's obviously earning way more on commission than anybody else because the other five put together aren't even making half of what she's making on commission. And that created some friction internally and she ended up leaving. Well, I don't do business with that company anymore. I do business with her new company now. So, you know, if, and that's, I think that should be an incentive for if, if you're a good salesperson who builds good trusted relationships, it's not just for you, good for you in terms of, you know, you're going to bring your customers and your, uh, your commission as well with you. But in terms of the actual company, if you hire, you know, good people, people, good, good ethical salespeople that build good relationships that care about, like, you're going to make more sales. Like, you, you have to value that. This, this actually brings me back to one of the more important points, more interesting points from, from yesterday's conversation I was talking about, is that resellers are always trying to give us presentations on their product, which, which makes sense. You know, the, the, every time you have them there, it's for them to show you their product. But what if, what if instead of doing that, you just did good things instead? You just you know, sponsor a session with Mike Jones you know, give, give these people some money so they can put Mike Jones up and give Mike Jones a little bit of money because it's interesting to us. It, it doesn't have anything to do with your product, but it's interesting to us. It actually brings value to our lives. That makes me want to do business with your company. It's like going to a free museum, enjoying it, and then on the way out, I'm going to buy something at the gift shop. I don't need any of the overpriced tat in the gift shop but you've done something for me in the community and I want to give back to you. So I want to spend some money in your gift shop to keep this going. In the same way that if you do good things for the community, even if they're completely unrelated to your product or your service, the second I need that product or service, I can choose between five different vendors, but I'm going to go to you because you did something positive for the community. So start investing instead of just on the products and telling us about your products, which to be honest, they're not, most of them are not that differentiated and just be a better company that we want to do business with. And we'll come to you when we have that need. And I think that's an approach that more people should do. I mean, I don't know how mo most people think, but I think that that relationship and that how things fit together and the, the yin and yang of it, I think that's important. I agree. It's yeah. very, I, well, hopefully that's going to, you know, be, be what we see going forward is the future. And if any, any of those companies are listening, we will definitely accept sponsorship for this show as well. <laughs> if, if Dark Trace is listening, I would expect. <laughs> Thanks for watching part one with Greg. He's a really interesting guy with some really fascinating insights into the infosec industry. I love how he's turned himself from a bedroom hacker into a real influencer within the industry. Greg's got a very unique story, so join us in part two for what happened next in his career.